Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Happy New Year and welcome to Talking Tudors episode 142. I'm your host Natalie Gruninger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking and the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who join the Talking Tudors family in December including Jessica, Denise, Jeffrey and Brooke. Thank you to Margot, Cynthia, AJ Cook, Lynn, Alison, Rachel, Eloisa, Loreen, and Lee. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd think about becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. January's prize is a fabulous Tudor gift package containing lots of Tudor-themed goodies, including one of the books I created with Catherine Holman, Colouring History, The Tudors. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom, These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to James Peacock and Sandra Vasoli about some of the ways in which Elizabeth I honoured her mother's memory. Do get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Charlie Fenton to the show to chat about Jane Boleyn Lady Rochford. Charlie is a medieval and early modern studies PhD student at the University of Kent in Canterbury, currently researching the impact of the Reformation in Kent during the reigns of Edward VI, Mary I and Elizabeth I. She runs a blog and Facebook page through the eyes of Anne Boleyn and is the book reviewer for the Tudor Society's monthly magazine. She has also published several books, the latest one entitled Jane Parker, The Downfall of Two Tudor Queens. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
welcome to Talking Tubes, Charlie. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's fantastic. I've been looking forward to our chat. So let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Hi, everyone. And uh, my name is Charlie Fenton, uh, but most will know me for running the Facebook page and blog Through the Eyes of Amberlynn, which I started in 2013. That's so long ago now. Yes. Um, I'm also the book reviewer. I'm the book reviewer for the Tudor Society as well as a volunteer for Battle Abbey. Published three books, one novel, Perseverance, the story of Anne Boleyn, and two non-fiction, 1066 and the Battle of Hastings, as well as my latest, Jane Parker, the downfall of two Tudor queens, which I'll be talking about with you today. I'm currently undertaking a PhD in medieval and early modern studies at the University of Kent, researching the impact of the Reformation in Kent during the reigns of Edward VI, Mary the First and Elizabeth the First. You also often see me visiting various historic sites and posting a, a lot of pictures on my many social media accounts. I think I counted I went to like 50 sites last year alone. Thanks, Charlie. Now, how about let's let's start talking about that last book that you mentioned, Jane Parker, The Downfall of Two Tudor Queens. So can you tell us a little bit about this this particular book? Well, I've been interested in Jane since I published my novel Perseverance. And upon researching Anne's sister-in-law, I didn't find what I was expecting. For everything I've read and watched on TV, I was expecting this malicious woman who hated her in-laws and deliberately plotted to bring them down before then going insane and bringing down Catherine Howard too, resulting in her own execution alongside the fifth queen. I know you shouldn't judge things based on fiction, but I was even finding this in non-fiction accounts. But when I tried to follow the references up, they either quoted later historians or just drew a blank. So when it came around to writing my dissertation for my undergraduate history degree, I knew I wanted to write it on her, looking at her alleged alleged role in the downfalls of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. That then was fleshed out into this book, which came out early last year. Fantastic. And I suppose when we hear about Jane, it tends to be her involvement or her, so I should say her alleged involvement in, you know, George's downfall or her part that she played with Catherine Howard. But can you tell us a little bit about Jane's family and maybe do we know anything about her early life and how her marriage to George Boleyn came about? Now, that's a difficult one, mainly because we don't know a lot about her early life, which is sadly the case of a lot of women of this time period. But I guess I'll tell you what I do know. Jane was the daughter of Henry Parker, uh, Lord Morley, and Alice at John, and was born probably sometime around 1504 or 1505, being one of at least four children the couple had. She grew up in the manor of Great Hallenbury in Essex, which was the Morley family seat, and would have lived a fairly comfortable life coming from a wealthy and well-connected family. And coming from such a family, it was, of course, expected for her father to get her a post at court, And we know Jane entered Catherine of Aragon's service sometime in 1520, at least by June, because a mistress Parker is recorded as having attended the Field of Cloth of Gold. Must have been some event to have witnessed. As for Jane and George, this requires some guesswork, as we have no official date for when they married, or if we can estimate it was sometime between late 1524 and early 1525. So they were luckier than a lot of couples at the time. As if estimates by other historians are to be believed, the two were around the same age. That was no certainty. And I can imagine Jane must have been thankful for that. Yeah, so they were, we don't, well, we don't know when George was born either. So we can't really say for certain, but probably early 20s, do you think? 
Yes, yes, that's yeah. when we think. And according to other historians like uh, Claire Ridgway and the others who've researched his life, they estimate that's roughly around when he was born as well. So by the guesses, they were probably around the same age. And so at least there's she could be thankful she could have married a much older man, as many did back then. They had some things in their favour and she would have known him from court at least. Absolutely. And you mentioned before depictions in popular history of Jane, of course, have not always been very kind. In fact, usually they're not very kind depictions. Um, And popular history would have us believe that Jane and George's marriage was absolutely miserable. Um, During your research, did you find any evidence to support this? Absolutely not. Uh, There is no contemporary evidence to support this view. All we really have is silence on the matter, which I think in itself is telling. There was so much gossip surrounding the Boleyn family. I mean, everyone was talking about them. And Jane and George were right at the centre of it all. The fact that even Shapwe, the Imperial Ambassador, who was well known for reporting everything he heard, didn't have anything to say about their relationship, tells us that there probably wasn't anything to say. If it was as bad as has been made out, surely there would be some comment. The only thing I've heard people say, sources nowadays, against this is that they had no children. But that, of course, is no proof of anything. They could have had fertility issues or what many people forget is that George himself was away a lot as he was sent abroad as an ambassador and diplomat. Actually, the first person to mention an unhappy marriage was George Wyatt in Elizabeth I's reign. But he did not know them and... In my opinion, he only wrote this as he needed someone to blame for Anne Boleyn's downfall. And who else was he to blame? Certainly not Elizabeth's father. So why not Jane? She was an easy scapegoat and she was involved in Catherine Howard's downfall too. Yeah, that's a good point you make, especially about George Wyatt, of course, because, you know, people rely on his his account quite heavily. But of course, he couldn't really say anything about Anne or Henry during Elizabeth's reign. So there wasn't, you know, he had to find someone else close. So that's, yeah, that's a good point. Now, um, she's also, Jane Boleyn, often portrayed as having played a very prominent role in the downfall of her husband and sister-in-law in May, April, May 1536. And she's often accused of having provided Thomas Cromwell with evidence needed to accuse Anne and George of incest. So when you were doing your digging, what did you find in relation to this? What I uncovered really was a lack of evidence. (laughs) Everything that people have said doesn't seem to come from anywhere, at least not from any contemporary source. One of the most interesting pieces of evidence that does actually paint her in a more positive light, however, is a record by Sir William Kingston of Jane having sent a message to George while he was in the Tower of London. She promised to intercede with the king on his behalf, which is hardly the actions of someone working with Cromwell against him. She had no reason to make false promises. But other than that, there's not a lot on Jane. There is one mention in a trial about George blaming the accusations of one woman being responsible for being against him, but why wouldn't he name her? And one woman hardly means it has to be Jane. That's quite a leap. So really, there is nothing pointing to Jane. And I think if it was Jane, it would have caused such a scandal that they would have mentioned it. No, I completely agree with you. And when I was doing some research for my um, latest book, I found that that mention of the one woman that, you know, people say, oh, she gave the, the evidence was in fact based on Lancelot de Carle's poem. And if you do a yes. close reading of the poem, it's quite clear that he's referring to the Countess of Worcester, actually, and not yeah. to 
Jane at all. So it's it's interesting how little pieces have been taken out of context and then used yeah. to you know support different views. So yeah, mm. poor Jane, she's had a, a rough trot, the poor thing, in history. <laughs> I think hindsight, thinking Catherine Howard, if she was involved with one, she must have been involved with the other yes, one. Yes, exactly. That that old thing of reading the story backwards, as we tend to do with the with Tudors and a lot of history, I suppose. But um, so what happens to Jane in the immediate aftermath after George's execution? Yeah, this leads on quite nicely from the last question, actually, and I. I think it helps provide some more evidence against her working with Cromwell, at least in my opinion, because Jane really struggles financially after the downfall of the Blinds, and she doesn't benefit at all from it, as someone who helps organise it might do. And Thomas Blinn, her father-in-law, won't support her, despite the agreement made in the marriage contract, and she's forced to write to Cromwell in a heartbroken letter, begging him to intercede with her case. She calls herself a poor, desolate widow, knowing Cromwell is is known for helping widows and asking him to help with her father-in-law, but there's nothing more to it than that. I mean, why would she bring down her husband just to end up like this? I mean, in the end, Cromwell does help, and Thomas does, a bit begrudgingly, give in and pay her what she is due, but she had to beg for that. She does do one thing, which I like to think is a little act of rebellion on her part, in that she continues to dress in black for the rest of her life and goes to court like that. Yeah, that's such an interesting detail, isn't it? Because it it sort of says a lot about her relationship with George, I think. And again, you're absolutely correct. She, you know, was left in dire straits. So why participate in the plot in the first place? It's it's very strange. Doesn't make sense to me either. So do we know when she actually returns to court? Does she come? Does she serve Jane? And then tell us a little bit about her time in service to the um, to Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves. Again, no precise date, sorry. That's the case with a lot of Jane. But um, all we know is it can't have been long after Jane Seymour became queen. I mean, sometime after the payment with uh, Jane's father-in-law was sorted. I mean, we know she serves both Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves. And she's there for quite significant events, being one of the senior ladies-in-waiting. I mean, she would have attended the birth of Prince Edward and was one of the most prominent women in Jane Seymour's funeral procession. She was second only to Lady Mary the king's daughter, who she was behind in procession and held the train for. As for Anne of Cleves, she was a participant in an important conversation about the lack of consummation of her marriage to Henry VIII. Jane provided the testimony for this, which was crucial to the annulment and paved the way for the fifth queen. I have to say, she witnessed some quite important events. Yeah, she definitely did. Spent a lot of time at court, that's for sure. And as you mentioned, she goes on to serve Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, and again, Charlie, I don't quite know how this happens, but ends up embroiled in another scandal that eventually, of course, leads to her execution. So can you talk us through Jane's involvement in this, you know, controversial <laughs> and dramatic event? Ah, oh, wow. Um, now, despite me having written on it, I don't think anyone will ever truly understand what was going through Jane's head or all three of their heads. I mean, Jane, Catherine and Culpepper. Um, Jane's involvement is difficult to pin down and it really depends on whose version of events you believe and how far you think everything went so I'm going to say this is strictly my opinion I think Jane started out by trying to guide Catherine as she'd served four of Henry VIII's wives by that point and Catherine was young and suddenly thrust into this position of queen she wasn't even at court that long before this all happened we know it wasn't long before Jane was elevated above the rest of Catherine's women spending more time with her in private and, as we hear in accounts, causing some jealousy. Now, when Culpepper comes onto the scene, 
We have to remember he is one of the king's men. So some interaction between the queen and him, facilitated by her ladies, was to be expected. I personally think Jane was responsible for something which started out innocently at first, like passing a letter on to him, which quickly snowballed out of control. I mean, soon she was responsible for arranging meetings, which again, maybe started out innocently. Then Catherine was using it to give Culpepper a velvet cap. But Jane knew she would be implicated and had to do damage control, so to speak. So she was responsible for keeping this liaison a secret, seeking out places during the Northern Progress that the two could meet and just doing the best you could. There was a lot of pressure on her. She was still only a lady in waiting and Catherine was the queen. And who wanted to be the one to tell Henry that Catherine may or may not at this point be interested in one of his men? She was definitely in a very awkward position wasn't she I I really feel for her that's yeah not easy and you know we've mentioned that there are many obviously misconceptions about Jane about her life in your opinion and during your your research and your study what do you think is one of the most persistent or ones that you would really love to to clarify I think the most persistent has to be that she was a a spiteful woman that no one really liked Um, people seem to have formed an impression of a woman from 500 years ago that we really don't know much about at least personality wise yet in everything i read about her in fiction she is shown as malicious a gossip and deliberately stirring up trouble i mean there's even a scene in wolf hall where she provokes amblin to slap her which just seems unreal especially as all evidence points to them being close with her confiding in her about Henry's sexual issues and Jane helping to try to get, get one of her his mistresses removed from court. Also, if she was really like that, why would the queens keep appointing her? Not keep her on if she was not good at what she did. And if she did not at least try to get on with people to some extent. There are so few records of her during her time serving Catherine Aragon, Jane Seymour and Anna Cleves, which suggests she was anything but a troublemaker. Yeah, it does point to the fact that she was doing her job and probably doing her job really well, hence the the lack of appearing in the sources. Um, And so you you said you're doing a PhD at the moment, which sounds fantastic. Do you plan to write any other books or to do any further study on Jane or any of the other um, prominent uh, Tudor courtiers? Yes, there's a few that I want to do. I mean, I did do uh, a dissertation during my MA on Stephen Gardner, and I would love to do a proper work on him at some point. I've also signed a contract with Pen and Sword to do an illustrated history of Catherine Howard, which would link in with my Jane Parker book. So that will be forthcoming. But obviously the PhD has to take precedence, especially (laughs) during these times. Uh, So um, a lot of work on that. So uh, very busy. Yeah, Um, fantastic. Sounds like a lot of things to look forward to. So yes. Charlie, you, you've, I know you've listened to a few episodes, so you know that at the end of our episodes, I like to ask guests some questions just to get to know them a little bit better. So first question, I know, and as you mentioned, you love visiting historic sites. You post some fantastic photos. What's one of your favourite ones to visit? I'm not going to go for an obvious one. I'm going to go for Michelin Priory. That's in Sussex. It's quite a small place. And I think it was taken over by Cromwell during the dissolution. And it's just a quaint little place. If anyone can visit it, it's it's small. It's not very expensive to get into. And it's just so beautiful. It's hard to describe. It's And it, should, it deserves more love, really, because I think it, it needs not help but it just needs more support 
Is it that they're substantial remains or is it in is it kind of ruins? It's an actual house. It's right, a okay. it's a priory, but it's an actual house. Okay. And okay. they do events throughout the year. They did a Tudor Christmas event a few years ago, which I loved there. It's an actual Fantastic. it's an actual house. There's a you can go through quite a few rooms there. And it's got quite large land there as well that you can wander around gardens. It's it's really nice. Wonderful. Excellent. Another one to add to the super long yes. list. <laughs> and you're obviously a voracious reader. I know you read lots of books. So what was the last one that you read? Not a Tudor one, funnily enough. I got for Christmas Bitten by Witch Fever by Lucinda Hawksley, okay. uh, which is actually on arsenic and the arsenic scandals during the Victorian period and arsenic wallpaper, which is wow. a bit different for me. But sometimes I like to read different things. Um, that was mainly because I watched a program on it. I think it was Susanna Lipscomb's Hidden Killers a few years ago. Yes. And was quite interested in the social side of things. And it's really good, actually. It's got quite a few examples of the wallpaper, which I'm just staring at a lot of the time, because even though it's deadly, they are stunning. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That sounds fascinating. And at school, Charlie, what was your favourite subject? I want to say history, but actually not. I loved English literature because I just loved reading. And I also loved, I loved writing stories. And a lot of the time I was just daydreaming. And if I got through the book a lot of the time quicker than everyone else and was moving on to the next thing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds good. And a lot of our listeners are actually students like yourself doing PhDs and other things. Do you have any study tips for them? I would say, actually, take a break. Um, I would say read around the subject. Yeah. A lot of the time, I used to immerse myself so much in the subject, and I love it, and it's great, but sometimes you can become a bit overwhelmed by it all, and it need, you need to almost take a step back and read around it or come back to it. So that's why I sometimes read from different periods, because it gives you a new perspective, so if you're, stu if you're studying history, I don't know whether that would apply to other subjects. But yeah, it sounds like, yeah, no, it makes would. sense. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously you've got a lot on with all your studies and all the other things. So what do you like to do to relax and unwind? I actually play video games and that sounds silly. No, that's fine. I know a lot of people. Um, I've been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed, which is yep. still history related, funnily <laughs> enough, because um, I've been playing the Valhalla recently, which is in Viking, England which I'm quite enjoying because I just like looking at historic sites and thinking I've sort of been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that sounds good. And what is a new skill that you would like to learn? I'd love to learn how to make stained glass, but that's... Oh, wow, that, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be amazing, but I think that's quite a big one to learn how to make. Can I say, I'd love to learn how to sew. That's a bit more of a realistic one. <laughs> yeah. More realistic. Fantastic. <laughs> and what's an ideal way for you to spend a Sunday morning or even a weekend? I've got to say that this is going to be typical me going out to a historic place. I mean, <laughs> mostly the weekends because I don't drive. So my dad or someone takes me. I just love going to these places. I've recently got a National Trust membership. So I've been visiting. I'm going to Standon this weekend. I don't know when this one's being broadcast. So yeah, you're so lucky to have all that incredible history on your doorstep. So why not yes. make the most of it? Yes. And what's a mystery that you wish you knew the answer to? History. It doesn't have to be a Tudor-related mystery, but any. Not Tudor. I want to know where. I want to know where King John's treasure's gone. Um, if anyone doesn't know what this is all about, near the end of his life, King John lost his substantial amount of the jewels, um, crown jewels, and his treasure. And I think it was in a swamp or kind of an area. I learned about this during my A level, so 
I excuse me if this is not exactly very no, clear. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I just want to know where it is because it's always fascinated me. And so it's not Judah, but I just want to know where King John's treasure is. I don't think we're ever going to know because I think there's been many attempts. But right, okay. Wouldn't that be an amazing <laughs> find? There you go. You can go out with the, the metal detector and yes. start searching the We've swamps. approximate ideas, but I think the land's shifted quite a lot since then because right. it's very like boggy and yep. it's moved so much since then. And so you've obviously written several books, as you were telling us earlier. So do you have any writing rituals that you like to follow? I don't think I really do. I mean... I try to stay away for a lot of books on the topic the nearer I get to writing. I mean, obviously, I if it's nonfiction, then I have to have read stuff on the topic. But as I get closer to the actual writing itself, I do try to stay away from it. But as for actual rituals themselves, not particularly. Yeah, um, no, that's okay. So you're not a person not that writing. writes in a cafe or has to write with complete silence like me. <laughs> I need everything Oh, quiet. no, I can't get complete silence uh, with my cat here. Right. So, <laughs> You won't allow that. Although your cat's been very good. I haven't even heard it, to be honest. Oh, no, no. She's watching, but she's not. She's just watching. And what is something, lucky last question for you, what is something that you're looking forward to this year? Something that I'm looking forward to this year, I'm going to Chatsworth uh, this year and I'm staying in one of their holiday cottages, pandemic dependent. Um, (laughs) But it's in June, I'm hopeful. I'm staying in one of their holiday cottages for a week and I just can't wait to see everything up there because I've never been to that part of the country before either so I've got a packed week as well as seeing the place itself and That's just best of hard work as well it's just an amazing oh, yes. woman because uh for those who don't know her connections obviously with that place and I want to see Hardwood Hall um just that area in general I did a similar trip to Sudley Castle a few years ago where I stayed in a cottage nearby on the estate and and it was amazing just to be in a completely different part of the country and just be surrounded by all the history there. Oh, well, I hope it all works out for you and you get to go and then we get to see all the amazing photos on your yeah, account. Yes, so that's always good. All, everyone with all those pictures. <laughs> and the very last thing, Charlie, is the Tudor takeaway. So I like to ask my guests for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Oh, I think someone may have already mentioned this. So oh, apologies. that's okay. But um, during lockdown, a group from the Department of Medieval and Early Modern Studies at the University of Kent, which is where I'm doing my PhD, created a website which compiles all of the free online resources they found on medieval and early modern history and literature, which was uh, MEMSLib. Um, It lists uh, hundreds of resources on there and includes resources on manuscript studies, the Islamic world, early modern literature. I mean, I could easily get lost in there. And it's, uh, I think it's MEMS, M-E-M-S, uh, lib, www.memslib.co.uk. And I just love the fact it includes resources from like around the world as well. So it's it's not limited to Britain and they're all free and it's just, it's the fact that they did so much productive during lockdown. I mean, not that you expect people to be. They've just helped people. I mean, it was so difficult for PhD students to get to archives and stuff during lockdown. So to be able to find things online in one place, it's brilliant. So that's it for me. That's the, yeah. that's what I suggest anyway. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll find the link and, and add the link to our show notes so people can find it because I, you know, we've got lots of international listeners. So that's going to be um, a really welcome resource, I think. And Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Tudors with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.